Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're in a, a great part of the year. Like, like there's been a giant swing in sort of like divine energy and everything like that. Let me just start with um, a classic B'nai Yisachar Torah because like this is just, you know, we talk about cash Torahs. What are, what are cash Torahs? That's like, those are Torahs that you have to have in your pocket at all time. You have to be able to pull them out at any moment and know how to say them. So go over this in your head because this time of year and beforehand, it's always very important to know this Torah. So everybody knows that um, in terms of Hashem's holiest name, the Yudke Vavke, right? That th- this is a name that stands for Chesed, for kindness. And there are 12 different permutations that you can make in terms of the letters of the name. And that correlates with each of the 12 months of the year. So for each month of the year, there's a different, what's called a Tziruf. There's a different Tziruf for each month of the year. And so the question is, what is the Tziruf for Av? And the answer is, it's Hey Vav and Yud Hey. Okay, that's how it rolls out. So, so the B'nai Saskar explains how that's actually a chart for the divine energy flow of Av. So let's just understand it. So since there are 12 different com- combinations of the, of the letters Yudke Vavke, there would be more ordinarily because it's four letters, but because there are two Hays, there are only 12, just for the mathematicians out there who are like scratching their heads saying, should there be more than 12? No, they're just 12. So, um, so one of them is going to have to be the backward spelling of Hashem's name. And in fact, that is the month of Tammuz. Now, Tammuz and Av, Tammuz is the month right before Av. Tammuz and Av are sort of like partner months because the three weeks leading up to Tisha B'Av, which marks the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, starts in Tammuz. The bulk of it is actually in Tammuz. And then it goes into the beginning of Av, culminates on the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av. And then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see, to be, to be continued, dot, dot, dot. So, so let's see. So like we're saying, the backward spelling of the Yud Vavke. Now remember, if Yud Vavke stands for Chesed, for kindness, if you spell the name in reverse, that stands for Din, for judgment. Right? So, so the month that has the backward spelling of the Yud Vavke, that's like a heavy, that's like a heavy month in terms of energy, right? Divine judgment, right? And that's actually the month of Tammuz. That's what has the backward spelling of Hashem's name. Okay? So that would be Hey Vav, Hey Yud. Okay? Now look at what happens in Av. Let's revisit the letters of Av. Because that, 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 that backward judgment flow starts in Tammuz and it flows into the beginning of Av, right? So the, the Tziruf for Av is Hey Vav, Yud and He. Okay? Now, 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 we can, now we've done our homework. Now we can hear what the B'nai Yisafir says. So he says, look how the beginning letters of Av, it goes, Hey Vav, that's the backward spelling, that's the name of Hashem's holiest name, going backwards again, right? Because Hey is the last letter of the Yud Kei Vav Kei, and then comes Vav. So it's going backwards again, which hints at judgment, which is a continuation of that energy flow which was established in Tammuz, it continues into Av, right? But now listen to this amazing twist, okay? We know that everything in Av turns around on Tuba Av. 
Tuba Av is, is the 15th of Av. That's what, what that means. And the Talmud says that Tuba Av and Yom Kippur are the two happiest days of the entire year. So everything turns around on the 15th of Av. So how do you do the number 15 in, in, in Gematria? It's Yud and He. So now let's revisit the letters of Av. So it starts with He and then Vav, which is the backward spelling of the name, which is the beginning part of the month, which hints at the judgment leading up to Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. But then it goes back into the normal order, the normal flow, not backwards, but it goes forwards now, Yud and He, which is not just a sort of a rectification of the energy back to the positive Yudke Vavke, which is the kindness of Hashem, but it's even more precise than that because Yud and He add up to the 15th, which is the 15th day of the month of Av, which is the day that all the energy turns around. So again, the letters of Av are He Vav, backward energy, judgment, and then Yud and He, which is 15, because on the 15th of Av, Tuba Av, everything turns around and becomes positive again. So, so here you see, like, with such precision, how the tziruf, the, the permutation of Hashem's names for the letters of the month, perfectly describes the personality and the energy flow that's happening in the month itself. And that's the B'nai Asasar. So, so, so thank God. We're, we, we, we made it through the, the three weeks and, and now we're, we're on the other side. And once you get to the other side, every year basically you've got Parshas Yes Hanan. And that has within it um, the, 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 a, a retelling of the receiving of the, of the Torah tablets, the divine tablets, the Luchos, on Mount Sinai. So we, right after Tisha B'Av, every year, we get the Torah again. All right, this is the second telling of the receiving of the Torah in the, in, in the Chumash. So, so now listen to what Reb Leibla Eger says. I heard it from Reb Shlomo. And, you know, we, we can't go by Parshas V'yas Chanan without this. And again, this is another just classic Kash Torah that you got to be able to say. So... Rabbi Leibel says that the Jewish people had a crisis after the sin of the golden calf because Moshe smashed the tablets. And on the tablets, the first thing that's written was, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God, your God. So the Jewish people wondered, it's been smashed. Is God still our God? And then we received the second tablets, which said the exact same thing as the first tablets. And on the second tablets, it also said, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God, your God. And so the Jewish people realize that God is still our God and He's never going to stop being our God. No matter what. That's, this, that's what it is. Okay. So now Reb Leibel Eger says, and you see really the depth and the emotion and the beauty of Hasidus here. He says that Parshas V'yes Chanan is always coming. The, the second tablets, the telling of the second tablets is always coming right after Tisha B'av, the first Shabbos after Tisha B'av. Because on Tisha B'av, we as a people have experienced so much trauma. And it's not just the historical trauma. It also stands for all the personal trauma that all of us have gone through in our own lives. And we could ask the question, God, are you still our God? 
And so right after Tisha B'Av, every single year, we get the Torah again, where it says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha. God says, I am God, your God, I'm still your God. That no matter what, no matter what you've gone through, that connection has never been broken and never will be broken. So, this Shabbos has a special name. It's one of the few Shabbos of the year that has a special name. It's called Shabbos Nachamu. And, and it's named after the Haftorah because, because it says, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. Be comforted, be comforted, my children. So all the rabbis want to know, why does it say this double language of be comforted? Like, be com- well, you say it once, that, that should be enough. So I heard in the name of a, one of the great rabbis, I, 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 I'm, I'm pained that I can't tell you who said it, I don't remember, but he said the following. He says, the first nachamu, the first be comforted, is Hashem telling us that you should know that for all of your suffering, all of your suffering, that, that ultimately you should know that it was for your good, that it was for your own good. That's the first Nachamu. The second Nachamu is Hashem telling us, but still, I'm sorry you had to go through it. So, another, for me anyway, a very, very strong Torah. Very, very strong Torah. Um, so I want to tell you a story. And this is something that just happened to me this week. And there's... Um, there's, there's a line in, in, in this week's Parsha, which is, um, you know, I'm going to, maybe I can, maybe I can just find it right here. Yeah, so this is uh, chapter 4, verse 7. I'll read it in English. For which is a great nation that has a God who is so close to it, as is Hashem our God, whenever we call to Him. So this is... Um, it's a, it's a very beautiful, meaningful passage, just saying that, that God is always very close, and that, that's kind of what we've been talking about up until now. And so anyway, I just, just want to tell you this, uh, this story. So I, I was uh, invited to, to speak at this sort of this national Torah gathering. And um, I, went down, I went down there this week and, and uh, gave a, a bunch of talks and there was a great crowd. It was just a beautiful, beautiful event. Um, and one of, one of the groups that I spoke with was a group of college students. And there, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, maybe 30 college students, something like this. And they've been learning, they've been learning Torah as part of the, it's called the Sinai Scholars uh, at their various campuses. And they were from all over the country. From, I went through the different schools that they went to all over, all over the United States and a very nice group and everything like this and you know they're learning about Torah and I was talking to them about sort of my, my, my journey, my spiritual journey and and just really just pouring out my heart really pouring out my heart and and while, while um, like in the middle of it um, uh, a, a photographer comes in and he starts like photographing and he's like stepping right up to me and he's like photographing hanging out right behind me and then walking it was like a very small room I, and it was it, I, I, I couldn't concentrate 
you know, and I was so focused on what I was trying to give over, you know, that it just, it it literally just completely shut me down. I I couldn't even speak anymore. And, and I, I, I said, I think the words that I said to him was, please don't think for a moment that you're not being distracted. (laughs) I, I, I think that's what I said, which was just sort of like rude, sarcastic comment. And the truth is, is that even after I said that, I guess it wasn't rude enough because he he just continued to do his thing, and I, I, I and I also continued to just just not speak. But and there I felt there was an energy building in the room. Also, I mean, from I, I felt it anyway, and and I just felt like that was sort of being just dissipated and just just and it was it was so frustrating. And then the guy leaves the room finally, and then I was able to kind of pick up where I left off, and then hopefully get it back into a good place. So, anyway, I was speaking to my wife afterwards, and, and I was saying, you know, of the, the, the various talks, like I felt like, for me anyway, that was the most meaningful one of all of them. And then I said, except, you know what, there was this incident during it. <laughs> and she was like, you know, you, maybe, you, you may have embarrassed him. And I was thinking, oh, you're right, you know, I can't believe it, you know. Hmm. Here I'm trying to give over, like, the whole, like, like, the whole Torah. Like, I'm trying to, like, do my very, very best. And at that moment, like, I could have, like, like, embarrassed this guy in public. Like, what is going on with me, you know? I felt so bad. And, and I said, I said, I got to find him and I've got to apologize. Right? I said, I got to do tshuva. I, I said that. And, and, but there was a problem. Was I had, they were literally in the dining hall. I'm not exaggerating. They, they actually made this announcement earlier. There were a thousand people in the dining hall. Okay, so there were a thousand people at this event. And, and I was so into the, I was so focused on what I was saying at the moment, I didn't even know what he looked like, really. You know, I, I don't think I could have found him. And there were a thousand people. Okay, so anyway. A few hours later, we have, uh, they called it formal night. This was dinner. This was, they picked a formal night. So, like, everyone had to, like, put on their, their suit and jacket or their nicer dress, whatever it is for the dinner, you know. So, you know, we were, my wife and I were joking about formal night. So, anyway, so we got ready for formal night. <laughs> and then... And then we walk in, and they had place cards for the table that you're at. So now there were there were I think a hundred tables. I mean, it was a massive ballroom, a massive ballroom, with like a hundred tables. Really, I'm I'm not exaggerating. And then like ten people at each table. So we take our card and we go deep into the into the sort of the sea of tables, and we see that there's no because we were maybe a half an hour late, whatever it is. There's no seats at our table. And then I see there's a brand new family that I hadn't seen before. And, you know, you could just see by, by just looking at them that they, you know, this was, this was like, they're, they're new to all this, you know? So, like, we're not going to say, okay, stand up, please. <laughs> like, get out of our seats. Like, what are you doing? You know, it's sort of like, no, you, we'll find another spot, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's fine. So, um, so we walk and uh, we're looking around. There are no seats. And, and then my wife goes to one of the organizers who's like seating people and then I go to another organizer 
And the other organizer says to me, he points to one table. It's a completely empty table. There's no one at it. It's like this pristine table. And in their wisdom, this is like great event planning. They had set aside one table anticipating that there are going to be problems with seating. And then they can all send them to this table. Like very smart, right? So I was like, okay, great. Yeah, I, I love it. You know, you can sit where it's, there's no crowd. Also, there was going to be a big speaker. Dennis Prager was giving a, like a big address. And it's like, you, you can pick the seat that's directly facing the stage. So it was like, I, I loved it. So I sat down. I'm sitting by myself at this big table. Then my wife comes up to me and she says, oh, this other organizer says that, you know, table 3B, whatever it is, there are two spots available there. And I was like, I'm very comfortable right here. And she's like, uh, okay, let me just tell the person then. So she goes back and she comes back and she says, are you sure you want to just sit by yourself? You, you don't want to be with other people? I'm like, I'm so happy here. And she said, all right. So she sits down next to me and, and we're, we're, we're sitting, we're talking. And, you know, uh, so then at a, at a certain point, like, you know, sometime into the meal, uh, not next to me, but one seat over, someone sits down, and he's sitting there, he's doing his thing, and my wife continued to talk with each other, and then at a certain point, my wife, God bless her, I should have thought of this myself, but um, uh, she, she realizes, oh, wait, maybe I'm being, I'm being rude, there's someone else at the table, and we haven't like said hello, we haven't, whatever it is, so she says hi, and she introduces herself to him, and he says, his name, he goes, oh, I'm so-and-so. I'm the guy who was bothering your husband during his talk. And we just, I, I had no idea it was him. I had no idea it was him. And he had been sitting next to me already now for a good five, ten minutes, whatever. Now, you got to picture this. I'm really asking you to picture this. There are a thousand people in this room. I walked to my table. It was blocked off. I get put at another table. My wife tries to pull me to another table where we would have been the last two at that table and then therefore no other seats at that table. And But for some reason I'm like really into this big blank table. Right? Then he sits down at this table. So I said, what did I said earlier? I said, I got to find him and I've got to apologize. I want to do tshuva. And look how God orchestrated this. I mean, mathematically, like, I don't know what the odds are, but incredibly remote, incredibly remote thing just right so what's that pasig again for which is a great nation that has a god who is close to it so as hashem our god whenever we call to him that god is so close that god is so close you know and i apologized i said i'm so sorry i i hope i didn't i said i hope i didn't embarrass you if i embarrassed you i'm so sorry he said no 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 it was fine you know he said, I, I, he said, your thing wasn't being taped, which I was really glad because I was saying a lot of personal things that I wouldn't have said if it was being taped. 
He said, your thing wasn't being taped. And so I felt like I had to get in there. And even though, like, you know, it always throws me. They have these things that look like 35 millimeter cameras, but they're actually, they're actually video recorders. I always think they're just still cameras. So I, I guess it was also a video recorder. So he felt as though he should be doing some video recording because there wasn't a camera there. So that was what was going through his mind. Okay, that's story number one. That's story number one. Story number two is like, I, I don't know, you can, we can have a vote, which is your favorite story, but in, I guess in some ways this next story may be better than that story, okay? So on Tisha B'Av, we, um, I, I've been doing this thing over the past bunch of years where we go through the Gomorrah of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, which is, um, which is one of the reasons why the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. And I, I, I'll just go through it very, very quickly right now because you, 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 have, to, you have to know this in order to understand the, the story that's going to take place, okay? And so, basically it's like this. There's a host, he's a, like a very wealthy person, and he's throwing a big party. And all the rabbis of the city are at this party, right? So the host tells his attendant, he says to him, go and invite Kamsa. That's his friend. And instead, what happens is the attendant gets confused and brings Bar Kamsa, who is a completely different person and who's the enemy of the host. And so Bar Kamsa comes to the party and he's sitting down, he's... He's eating, he's taking part in it. The host comes up, sees Bar Kamsa there, and it's like, what a chutzpah, like my enemy is at the party, can't figure out like what he's doing there. And he tells him to leave. Bar Kamsa says, uh, you know what, I'll pay for all of my food and drink that I'm eating. He says, no. He says, I'll pay for half the party. He says, no. He says, I'll pay for the entire banquet. He says, no. He grabs him, right? Like, this is like, like California law anyway, this is where it enters into assault, actually. You know, just detail. He grabs him, picks him up, throws him out. Barkamsa says, because the rabbis of the city saw and didn't say anything, I'm going to basically bring the wrath of the, the Roman government down on Jerusalem. So he concocts this plan, which turns out to be successful, convincing the Caesar that the Jewish people were rebelling against the government, which they were not doing, but he's able to manipulate events so that, it, that, that, that the Caesar is now convinced that the Jews are rebelling, which they were not doing, and then the wrath comes down, Jerusalem is destroyed, and the Holy Temple is destroyed. Okay? That's, that's the story. In a nutshell, we, we spend hours on this. Um, and... Uh, and my, my kind of thing is I just sit with whoever shows up and just ask a lot of questions. And what, we, what I try to figure out is let's pretend that we're all at the party at that moment and what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if you're at the party? Like, for instance, one of the interesting things about this Gomorrah is it's called the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, right? Bar Kamsa comes to the party Kamsa never comes to the party. So why is Kamsa's name in the headline? Not only is it in the headline, he's first among the people in the title of the story about the destruction of Jerusalem. 
Right? That's, that's one question. Another question is, if we're already naming names, we've got Kamsa and we've got Bar Kamsa, it seems like the person who really aggravated the entire thing was the host. The host is never named. You know, it's not, it doesn't look like the Gomorrah is looking to protect names. So why don't they mention the name of the host? So one of the things that comes out every year, and I think it's a beautiful thought, is that we're all the host. That's us, every one of us. And, and so that much more it becomes imperative what would you do in that situation? So, I'm just cutting to the chase because this literally goes on for hours. It would seem that the, it would seem like the best moment, and you know, it, it always depends on how you do it because there could be other moments that, that you could choose that could work. But it would seem like the highest probability for success moment, let's just put it that way, would be when Bar Kamsa, after Bar Kamsa has been kicked out of the party. Because at that moment he's by himself, right? And, it, and the Gomorrah says it's at that moment that he decided that he's going to hatch this diabolical plot against the Jewish people as revenge, was that moment when he's alone outside the party. And, and Interestingly, that seems to be the moment where you could go up to him and then try to reason with him because now you're alone and you have private time with him, not in front of other people, right? So that, that seems to be a very ideal moment. So I always flash on this thing that, you know, I think everyone's probably seen this scene in a movie where someone runs out of a party and in my mind, it's so they always run across the street into their car, right? Like, can you picture that from a movie? Like, somehow, somehow that scene seems to be in so many movies. So, okay. So I was saying at the shir, at the when we were studying this, if you're at a party and someone runs out of the party, that's the moment where you have to run after them. That was like our big takeaway. You were there. You remember? Okay. So now you're ready. Now I can tell you the story. That, that's, that's our homework for this story. Okay? So now listen to this. So Rabbi Freeman was, was at, the, at, at, the, at the Kamsa Bar Kamsa talk. And he heard everything that, and participated, added a lot to everything that, that I was just saying. So yesterday, Shabbos, he says, I have to tell you this unbelievable story that happened so he says, the day after Tisha B'Av, this is the day after we just did this, the next day, the next day, he says, I'm in shul and there's a party going on. All right, that alone, right? Like, you, like what's about to happen? <laughs> I'm in shul and there's a party going on. He says, and two people get into a big fight. And one person is so upset, he's throwing something down on the ground. And the next thing you know, that guy leaves the party. Storms out. And Rabbi Freeman said he's watching this. He can't believe what he's seeing. He's watching the Gomorrah unfold in front of his face. And so he knows he's got to run after the guy. 
So he runs after the guy and he says the guy didn't run across the street because it's a major avenue. Pico Boulevard is a major avenue. But he does run to his car. And then Rabbi Freeman, God bless him, I don't know how he had the presence of mind to do this, he gets into the guy's car. <laughs> Can you imagine? He opens up the passenger door, which happened to be open, and he gets into the guy's car. And he sits down and the guy says, you're sitting on my stuff, and what are you doing in my car? <laughs> and so, you know, he gets his stuff from under him. He says, what are you doing here? He says, and Rabbi Freeman was like, listen, I just want you to know, I know you're upset, but I just want you to know everything is going to be all right. And the guy says, I, what? He says, just, and he just does his best to reassure him. He says, everything's going to be okay. Just please know that. And then he gets out of his car. And the most amazing thing is that guy went back to shul the next day. Can you imagine? So, I'll repeat it for all of us. If you see anyone run out of a party, whether you know them or not, whether you know them or not, it doesn't matter if you know them. Find them. Find them. And just, look, Rabbi Freeman didn't say a lot. He just said, it's going to be okay. Just... No, everything is going to be okay. Just find them, go after them, just reassure them. You don't have to say a lot, right? Okay. So now, we just read, uh, in the Torah, we just read Shema, Shema Yisrael. And Shema is, uh, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of us, I'll speak for myself, when, if you ask me, where do we find, what's the source of Shema? Like, if, I, if, if you caught me on a really groggy day, I probably would say, well, the prayer book is the source of Shema. <laughs> like, that's where you find it. Because we're saying it, I think I counted five times a day, if you want to be really technical, but really, most people would say it twice a day, three times a day, whatever it is. We, formally, we say it in, in, in the morning prayers, in Shacharis. We say it in Marv, in the evening prayers. And you say it before you go to bed. Okay, so those are the major times. And then the, the rabbis sneak a couple of extra shamas in there. So if you're really on top of it, you can find it. It's in the early part of Shacharis and at the end of Azushir. But anyway, the, the, the main thing is to say it twice a day. And by the way, that parallels... Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says, the two times saying of Shema parallels the Korban Tamid, the ongoing offering that we would give in the base Hamigdash. So that's a, that's a good thing to know. Um, so, so I'll tell you, you know, to, to be able to, um, the, the, the ideal, the best, best case scenario, and, and people have achieved this throughout history. I mean, it would be an awesome, awesome way to leave this world is that the last words on your lips before a person leaves this world would be Shema Yisrael, Shema Elokeinu, Shema Echad. And it's, it's, it's happened. People have absolutely been able to do it. It's a great gift that, that God gives certain people that they're able to actually leave the world on those words. What, what's interesting is, is that that should be the last thing we say 
before we go to bed at night. And by the way, you, you shouldn't get too caught up in that. If someone, if like your husband, your wife, your kids, or whatever it is, asks you a question and you already said Shema, you can answer them. Then you say Shema again, that's all. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to get too caught up in, just, you know, like how people get between washing for bread and eating bread. Like, you know, all of a sudden, like, people have to pantomime everything. You don't, it's, it's not like that. Just answer the person, be a mensch, and then you say Shema again, that's all. So, so um, but what you see here is something very interesting, which is that each day is a miniature lifetime. And so you can end a day, which is also like ending on some level a lifetime by saying Shema at the end of a day. That's, that's an amazing thing, you know? And they say at that moment you have in mind that you're uplifting all the sparks from that day. That it's sort of like a lifetime has this like sort of like this constellation of sparks spread across the various days. And at that moment when you're saying Shema, all the sparks that are contained within that day, you're lifting up. And then it says that Avraham Avinu, the Zohar says that when Avraham Avinu left this world, he was surrounded by all of his days. So they say that you're, you're able to, you know, at that mind, you, you can have in, at that time you can have in mind that you're now bringing your, that day with you. And I don't even know what this is metaphysically, but almost like you can imagine a, a person wrapped in a talus, a soul, men, women, a soul will leave this world wrapped in the days that they, that they lived, you know, that they used accordingly. Can you imagine you're like, your soul is like wrapped in like time and space as you're leaving this world with all the time and space and sparks and everything that you elevated. It's like a very exalted kind of concept, you know? So anyway, these are different, different kavanas, different things that you can have in mind as you, go to, as, as you prepare to go to bed. Um, okay, so let's go further. So it says, it says, the words right after Shema, it says, via hafta, that, you know, that you should love God. And, b'chol uh, which means with all of your hearts, which is wild, that the Talmud, or rather that the Torah itself, oh, just to finish that other point, the source of Shema is not the prayer book, it's the actual Torah itself. That's where Shema comes from. And, but, you know, we read it in the prayer book constantly, and then we so rarely see it, except for once a year in the Torah, that a person could forget that Shema Yisrael, Shema Lekin, and Shema Chad is actually a verse from the Torah itself, you know? So, so right afterwards it says, that, it says that you should love God with all of your hearts, which is amazing because it just shows you how complicated people are. You know, you think you just have one heart, right? But you have, you have all these different instincts. And as the Talmud explains, you have your positive inclination and your negative inclination. And you have to serve God with your positive inclination and also with your negative inclination. So that's what it means with all of your hearts, right? I'll give you the opposite teaching, but it's not in, it's not in contradiction to that teaching. It's just a more poetic expression of this idea. One of my all-time favorite stories. When Reb Shlomo was visiting Germany one time, he was met at the airport by uh, uh, news cameras. 
and they asked him, do you hate us? Right? Because this is the German government talking to a rabbi who's arriving. Do you hate us? And listen to his answer, like one of the all-time classic answers. He says, you know, he says, if I had two hearts, I could use one for loving and one for hating. He says, but I only have one heart, so I have to use it for loving. That's what he said back to them, back to the, back to the German people. Right? Can you imagine? So, anyway, the next part of that phrase, the, the passage says, with all of your soul. So what does it mean that you love God with all of your soul? So that means that you're willing to die for God. Now, in general, you should know that if someone came up to you with a gun, God forbid, and said, eat this piece of ham or I'm going to kill you, you can eat the ham. You can absolutely eat the ham. However, there are three categories that a person has to take death upon themselves rather than to violate the mitzvahs of the Torah. And that is idol worship. If they say, bow down to this idol or I'm going to shoot you, you have to say, you know, go ahead. Or do this bit of immorality, sexual immorality. You have to take the bullet, so to speak. Or if you don't kill this other person, I'm going to kill you. Then you can't do that either. Okay, so those are the big three. And um, so the question is, how do I make this real for myself today? So thank God this isn't so shyach, so relevant to us today, right now, at least here in, in the United States, thank God. So when I say the Shema, and I'm about to say that even I'm ready to give up my life for you, God, what can that mean to me at this moment? Right? So you always have to have in mind pshat, right? So just what I told you. But I want to suggest a deeper kavana that, that one can have in addition. So the idea is when we're talking about the oneness of God, what we're saying is there's nothing that exists except God. That's what it means, Hashem Echad, the, the oneness of God. That means that all there is is God. All there is is God. So a person, when they sort of contemplate that, and I heard Rabbi Avram Sutton, actually, I heard him say this, and it, it stayed with me. He said, he said, please, he, like, he like, like begged us as he was saying this, please, when you hit Shema in, in your prayers, please don't rush through. You know, even if you fall a little bit behind in the davening, and, you know, the human brain is so awesome. You'd be amazed at how many things you can think in five seconds and ten seconds, like if you're focused. You can, like, think a, like a whole book, really, in like five, ten seconds, you know. So to take a little extra time when you say Shema so that you really, like, land on some of these ideas, you know. And then you can go on. And if you have to catch up in the davening, that's, that's fine. But, but don't just rush past it. It's, you're not being fair to yourself. So, so the idea is like this. If all that exists is God, then as I'm saying Shema, I can basically say, you know something? Then you know what? Then on some level, some very deep level, I don't even exist. Because all that exists is God. 
So, so a person can literally give their life up, uvechol nafshecha, right? A person can, so to speak, die for God at that moment, because at that moment you can cease to exist, because you just become absorbed in the complete oneness of God, and you're not even there anymore. So I want to compare it for a moment. There's, um, I think it's the Shem Mishmu, um, but maybe, maybe it's the Sakachavar Rebbe, I'm not sure, but they're one and the same on some level, depending on the generation. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's the son-in-law, by the way, the Katska Rebbe, or maybe the son of the son-in-law. So he's talking about the dynamics of the mikvah, and what he says is, is that the way the mikvah works, or at least one level of how a mikvah works, is that when, when you go completely underwater, a human being can't survive underwater, right? Because you can't breathe underwater. So it's not the realm of a human being underwater. So what happens is, is that you completely submerge, and then essentially you you cut yourself off from your own humanity. I'll explain that in a moment. And then when you re-emerge, what you've done is you've made a hefsik. A hefsik is a break. It's like a halachic break. So for instance, if I say, if I pick up an apple and say, and then I put the apple down, I don't bite it, and then I go shopping, and then I come back, I, I can't eat the apple again. It, it, it still needs a, a brocha because I made an interruption. I made what's called a hefsik in the performance. So, so what the what the Rebbe is saying is that when you go underwater, you make a hefsik in your own humanity <laughs> so that when you reemerge, you're not the person that you were before you went under. Because you can't live underwater. So on some level you cease to exist. And the person that rises up out of the water is not the person who went into the water. With that in mind, you can understand why one of the absolute moments of when someone becomes Jewish who's not Jewish is after they come up after after the mikvah. That is the moment after after everything. It needs that moment in the mikvah. But, but we have the mikvah, Jews have the mikvah also. It's not just for conversion. It's for, it's for our own lives. So what I'm saying to you is that saying Shema, disappearing into the oneness of God, and then when you reemerge from the oneness, you're not the person that you were before. So you've literally, you've literally given up your life for God. You've made a hefsek in your own humanity, in your own life, and then you've re-emerged on the other side. Okay. So now I want to tell you something. Something, you got to focus a little bit on this. You got to concentrate on this to get this. But it's very good if you can understand it. Okay. <laughs> this is from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver in the name of the Vilna Gon. Okay. A very strong teaching, but, you know, I, I've said this to myself many, many, many times, over and over and over again, until I developed a real appreciation for it, and I can tell you, 
you might have to work on the sod a little bit to appreciate it, but if you get it, you're like, oh, that's magnificent. Okay? It's the Vilna Gov, right? This is the Vilna Gov. Okay. So, if you, if you look at Shema, Shema Yisrael, Shema Lokin, or Shema Chad, then we say, Baruch Shem Kavod, Machus Olelam Ve'ed. You've got two phrases there, both of them of six words. Okay? So, so listen to what the listen to what the Vilna Gaon says. Let's start with Baruch Shem Kavod Machus Olelam Ve'ed. That's six words, and by the way, that phrase was added by the rabbis. That's not in the Torah scroll. In the Torah scroll, it says Shema Yisrael Shem Elokin or Shem Echad, V'yahavta Es Hashem Elokecha. Okay, so why they added the Baruch Shem Kavod? There are many teachings on that, but that's not for now. Okay, so let's start with Baruch Shem Kavod Machos Ba'ed, since that was added by the rabbis. That's like Torah Shabal Peh. All right, that's like that's the oral law, and it makes sense because there's six words, and the Vilna Gaon says there are also six orders of the Mishnah. So the oral law really has six components, and that's reflected in each one of the words. Baruch Shem Kavod Machus Very good. Now, Shema also has six words, but now this is where you have to start listening carefully. Shema also has six words. He says the first five words stands for the five books of the Torah, which is Torah Shebek So, okay, so we'll get to the six word in a moment. The word Echad, just file that away for one moment. So, and remember, this is the Vilna Gon speaking. So, you've got the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law. That's the six orders of the Mishnah reflected in the six words, Brokshem Kavod Machosolim Lambed. Very clear. Then you've got the first five words of Shema itself, and that's the five books of the Torah. That's the written law. So, you've got the written law, and you've got the oral law right next to each other. Got it? Now, what are we doing with the word echad? That's the final word of the phrase shma, right? So this is where the genius kicks in. Echad is gematria 13. There are 13, the 13 principles of Rabbi Yishmol, which in English, it's one of my favorite English words, which is, it's the 13 hermeneutical principles <laughs> If you look, that's what they call it. What, what, what does that mean? There are 13 different ways that the rabbis use 13 different tools, like um, methodological tools, that the rabbis would use to pull out the oral law from the written law. Right? And we say it in the, in the prayers right before Shachris every morning. It starts off with Rabbi Yishmael. And it lists all 13, right? So, so again, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem, that's the first five words, that's the written law. Right underneath you have the oral law. Then you have this word, Echad. Echad also means one. So it's the Gematria 13. Through these 13 principles, you see that the oral law and the written law are echad, are all one. It's all one unit. Did everyone hear? So the echad is telling you that the oral law and the written law are all one, and how they are one, because echad is 13, which are the 13 principles that tie the two things together, where you see that it's one organic unity. So, that's the Vilnika. 
when teaching. Um, so, just end with this uh, teaching from the B'nai Saskar, beautiful teaching. We just had we just had Tuba'av. Tuba'av we know is 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 a day where like everything turns around. It's this fantastic day. Turn in the energy and now we're like basically racing toward the Yom Tovim. Right? Like the like like it's on. It's on. We're now racing racing to just finish off the year in a great way. Um so one of the glorious things about Tuba'av, of the 15th of Av, is this is known as, as the day when Shidduchim are made, marriage matches are made. And what's so deep is that it says in the, in the, in the Talmud, it says that 40 days, and there's sort of a debate as to what it is 40 days before, whether it's 40 days before conception or 40 days before birth or whatever it is, but 40 days before a child is born, in heaven it says, the, the son of so-and-so is going to marry the daughter of so-and-so. A voice goes out in heaven calling out the name of your Bashir. Now listen to this. Listen to this. This is such an exalted Torah. The, the, the earth, the, the universe was actually made, like if, you, if I asked you when was the universe made, probably you say Rosh Hashanah which is the first day of Tishrei. And that's a right answer. But there's another right answer, which is that actually Rosh Hashanah is the sixth day of creation because that's when human beings were made. So since human beings are sort of the purpose of creation, it's fair to say that that's when the world was created. It's, it's, it's perfectly 100% okay. But it wasn't the first day of creation, okay? The first day of creation is the 25th of Elul. So that's when the universe, so to speak, is born, is created. Now what do you think 40 days before, what do you think 40 days before the first day of creation is? It's Tuba'af, which is the day of Shaduchim. And so the B'nai Yisaskar says 40 days before the world was created, a voice rang out in heaven that the Jewish people and Hashem are matches. So, so we can go forward knowing how close God is, right? There are a thousand people in that room, approximately. A thousand people in that room didn't even know what this guy looks like. And God puts me at his table. Or puts him at my table, whatever it was. Like, if a person... You know, it says that, that, that these days are coming up. It's talking about tshuva, and it says, it says God is not across the ocean. God is very near to you. And the rabbis explain, what does that mean, God is very near to you? That means that any person who wants to do tshuva, who wants to come close, God helps that person. God helps that person. And you should know the Rav Kook Torah, just essential, another cash Torah, is that a person shouldn't think if they're doing tshuva, that they're becoming somebody else. 
they're just returning to the essence of who they are and they're just just they're just shining out their own essence so god should bless us especially in these coming days that we should just get stronger and stronger through the knowledge of knowing just how close god is at all times Amen. now for some questions and answers Uh-huh. So, like, I don't know what he was trying to say with that, but yeah. um, just, like, yeah. I didn't know what to say. I yeah. Know. I don't know. I never really thought of it as plural, you know? I don't know. I'll have to try to find an answer. I don't know. Yeah. Bug in my brain. You know, I mean, the thing that I would say is that, I mean, just, if, just to give you a reaction, I'm not saying this is the official answer, but Elohim is Gamatria Hateva. In other words, that's the, that's the name which of God. Remember, all the different names of God, it's only talking about one God, but it's the different ways that God manifests himself in the world. Like the example I always like to give is that, you know, you know my kids call me daddy, you know, my wife would call me sweetheart, right? Like my son's friends would call me Mr. Sachs. So you see, every single person, if you think about your own life, it, my, my, my nephews call me uncle, right? So everyone has many different names, right? So God also has different names depending on how he's manifesting himself at that moment. But we're only talking about Hashem, the maker of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, right? So when it says Elohim, that name correlates with the forces of nature. That means when God appears as in, in this garment or is seen through in this garment of nature, Nature is something that is very confusing. It's very beautiful. But it would seem, if you just looked at nature, that there are many forces, that there's a plural, that there's a plurality of forces. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Because so, so it would make sense that this name, Elohim, should be in the plural. Because one of the ways that God manifests himself is this, is this way that he could be understood as Oh, there's several forces there, but no, 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 there are not several forces. It's only one force. That that would just be my my immediate reaction, but I'm sure you could get a better answer from someone else. <laughs> it's the, um, the thing, like, Yeah, it is. And hopefully the two can go together. In other words, if you had to prioritize spending more time on Shema or entering Shemona Esrei at, at the time that the congregation is doing it, it's probably better to um, do the uh, Shemona Esrei at the right time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But at the same time, if, if you have the ability to like yeah. slow down and catch up, yeah. then, then, that, then that's ideal. Okay. Yeah. By the way, it might be online because they were oh, t- they were filming all these things and they have this thing called Torah Cafe. Okay. And on TorahCafe.org or .com, I think that they were putting all these talks up or snippets. Go ahead. So yeah. no, about maybe ten years ago now, he used to have this thing in the summer called 
inward bound. Yes, I remember that. For ten years, for ten days or so, two weeks, ten days, where you come and they have places to stay, and you learned with Rabbi Aaron and Mutal Wall. Yes. So in the class, it, it just he he talked about cash towers. Yeah, it's then, a Reb Shlomo phrase. Yeah. Oh, is it yeah. really? Yeah. Because people in the class, whenever he would come out with one of these wow stories. People would instead of saying cash tower, they go kachang, <laughs> and funny. everybody in the class yeah. at some point they go kachang and do this. Like a yeah, it's funny. Stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it just reminds me when you said that it was so powerful yeah. because it, it's exactly what. Well, it I, I I heard Rip Shlomo say it several times, and one of the things he says is he he, he I, I heard him say it one way anyway this this way. He says, you know, there are a lot of rich people, if you go up to them and you ask them for money, they never have any money on them. And it's true, you know. And then he says, there are other people who really, they're not rich at all, but if you ask them for some money, they always have money on them. Right? So he said he was making an analogy, and he was saying that there are a lot of people who are brilliant tamiri chachamim, but if you come up to them and you ask them a question, they haven't got an answer for you at that, at, in the moment. Other people who know maybe less, they actually have the answer to your question. So he was likening that to cash in the pocket. And so he felt like there was a certain certain set of teachings that was like cash that you had to have in your pocket. Um, to inspire someone. Or, or, yeah, that, but also that you should just know it yourself, that you shouldn't have to think about it, that it's just on your fingertips at all times. Mm-hmm. You know, because... It's like I heard, um, this is a separate thought, but it's, it's, it's related. I heard that um, uh, Rabbi uh, Noach Weinberg, uh, Shalom, the, the founder of uh, Eishat Torah, he would, uh, apparently, he would say to his students all the time, know what you know. Yeah. And that's, that's, a very, that's very deep, because it, it, to, as I understand it, a lot of people like... Um, like for instance like to give an example sometimes like I'll just speak about myself you'll go to a a, a talk or something and someone will say something and you're like oh I I know that one already you know I I heard that already and then I'll sort of like space out and then I said to myself I started saying to myself if he were to stop speaking right now could you go up there and finish the entire thought and then I said to myself, well, actually, no. And they said, well, then you didn't hear it the first time. Right? So, so that's an example of where people... Uh, it's the opposite of knowing what you know. Because a lot of people think they know something, but they actually don't know it. If you know it, you can say it. And if you can't say it, then you don't know it. So when he was saying, know what you know, everything that you think you know, that you credit for yourself for knowing, a lot of that stuff is just stuff that you've heard. You don't know it, you just heard it. There's a huge difference between hearing something and knowing something. There's an enormous difference between it. So he said, know what you know. If you're actually going to credit yourself with with knowing it, you should be able to, to say it. And that's very much uh, in keeping with what Reb Shlomo is talking about, Kash Torahs, 
that these things have to be in your pockets at all times. These things have to be stuff that you, that you can actually pull out at a moment's notice because you know what you know. Um... When you say you actually you actually have less kavana, or is it are you talking about in practical terms? How are you? No, I not. I mean, not every time, not every time. But there are many times when I'll when I say shema, I, I'll think about what I just told you. Oh, so, so you have that kavana when you're saying it. Yeah. You, yeah. Things, you, usually, yeah. usually it will be. Yeah. Usually, I I think that after I've said it is the truth. Maybe you're supposed to say it before you say it. I don't know, but mm-hmm. I usually say it, think about it after I've said it. Mm-hmm. When I think about it, it's not every time, but it's it's you know I I do do it. Yeah. So when you say when you say verses or um or just like you know I think there if you just look in the like the Ashkenazi sitter for instance mm-hmm. they just have Shema Brokshen Kavod and Via Hafta. But I know some people like to say all three paragraphs, and then there's a whole Seder, there's a whole service bedtime Shema, which goes on for several pages. And it's, it's, it's quite lengthy. I've never been able to, to do it, to be perfectly honest with you. But I know people do it, and it's a whole service. It's like a whole another prayer service. It goes on for pages. You know, if you can do it, call a kavod, you know? Yeah. But I always wondered about that, because it doesn't end with Shema Yisrael. I always wondered about that. Why this whole long thing doesn't end with Shema Yisrael? So I think if I ever were to actually get through it, I would just add in another Shema Yisrael so I could have those as my last words. But anyway. Plus when people about a story or a thing, they're bringing that, like you said, oh, I know this. But they're bringing their own nuance to it. And you never know what they're going to bring that's going to be a wow. Exactly. And and that's a, a, a very... You're absolutely right, because... You know, that, that, that's one of the reasons why the sages really counsel people not to interrupt people. Because as much as you think you know what the rest of their thought is, and let me just jump in. By the way, I heard something interesting, at least this is for the United States anyway. The difference between northerners and southerners, or one difference, is that, um, you know, southerners speak a little bit more slowly. This is... I read this many years ago, I don't know if it's still true, but anyway, they speak a little more slowly, and if you interrupt them, they consider that very rude, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, say, New Yorkers, I'm from New York, they'll jump into the middle of your sentence as a sign of interest. Right. In other words, they're not trying to shut you up. They, 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 they are very eager to engage you. So their interrupting you is, is actually, a, they mean positive by that, not negative. So you have a clash of cultures there, where both people are trying to do the right thing, but they, 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 it's like in, they're a bit opposites, you know? So, um, but the sages say, counsel people not to interrupt people, and you, there's a lot of wisdom in that. One of the things is, is that you never know where the person is going to take that thought. And as much as you think you know like, I remember when I was first learning Rebbe Nachman, I would think, oh, I know where this thought is going, and I'd feel, like, so smart. And I was right for, like, probably the next word. <laughs> and then it would go off in a completely different, like, in a hundred different directions. 
And it's like, oh yeah, I'm such a like I'm such a scholar. I like anticipated like the next half a breath out of his mouth. And it's like he was not even close to being done speaking. You know, so so and and you'll learn about the other person and you'll learn things in life that you literally are cutting yourself off from if you interrupt people. Because that you'll that person will there's an excellent chance you won't interact with that person again, or certainly you won't interact with that person on the same subject again, or even if you do, they may not even have it in mind to say that thing. In other words, you may never hear that thing in your entire life that was ready to be communicated to you. So it's it's actually a pretty it's a pretty like 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 overwhelming thought, you know? Anyway.